It is perhaps impossible to identify a specific origin of the American concern with the effect of popular music on the character and behavior of young people. It has often, and probably rightly, been said that every generation of parents has grumbled about the musical tastes of its children. Grown-ups worried first about jazz, then about Elvis, then the Beatles, and many other musical phenomena since, sometimes to the consternation and sometimes to the amusement of the young people who like the music. One can, however, identify a particular event that marks the beginning of the more recent debate over the social and moral significance of contemporary popular music. The founding in 1985 and rise to prominence of the Parents' Music Resource Centre, PMRC. The organisation was founded in the spring of that year by a bipartisan group of spouses of important national politicians, the most prominent among them being Tipper Gore and Susan Baker, wife of James Baker, who at the time was Ronald Reagan's Treasury Secretary. The Washington Wives, as they were often called by their detractors, were spurred to action after hearing the music to which their own children were listening. They called on the record industry to help parents by rating record albums to restrict their children's access to potentially offensive music. Their campaign reached its climax in the fall of 1985 in the celebrated hearing on this issue held by the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation. Despite all its confrontational drama, with the likes of Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder going head-to-head -head with such as the Gores and Senator Ernest Hollings, the hearings led only to a small change in the practices of the music industry. The record companies ultimately agreed to label potentially offensive material, but did so with each company deciding for itself, and according to its own instead of industry-wide standards, which recordings would be stickered. A more important achievement of the PMRC was that it sparked a public debate on the moral and social impact of certain forms of popular music, which has continued for 15 years. Though worries about pop music had been around for a long time before 1985, prior to the PMRC's campaign, they were not of such continuous and widespread concern. Its efforts brought to light significant changes in popular music, now the messages about sex, drugs and even violence were no longer veiled but vivid and vulgar, and their purveyors were no longer marginal but among the most popular of rock groups. Seemingly without the nation's grown-ups noticing, mainstream rock had changed much for the worse by 1985. Since then, American popular music, or at least the music at the centre of the controversy, has progressed so far that the music decried by the PMRC in 1985 now seems almost benign. Although some of the songs criticised at the time seemed to glorify violence, on the whole they were characterised chiefly by an infantile sexuality. While the depravity of such music no doubt warrants public protest, the alarming fact is that since 1985, violence has loomed larger and larger as a theme of popular music. Sex and violence, which in more innocent times one could safely assume to be distinct categories of obscenity, seem to have merged. Certain popular rock and rap acts sing not only about the joys of sex, but of sex that is degrading or physically injurious to women. This increasingly rapid flight from even the most minimal standards of decency has led to two noteworthy changes in the public argument regarding the morality of popular music.
First, politicians have shown greater boldness in confronting the issue. In 1985, the senators simply responded to a campaign spearheaded by women who were in many cases their own wives. But in recent years, presidential candidates of both parties have, without prompting from others, raised the issue, indicating that they sense a growing public concern about such matters. Second, as certain strains of popular music have become more aggressively unwholesome, new activists have emerged with more aggressive demands. The PMRC was always careful to point out that it was asking only that record companies provide the information parents need to make informed decisions, not demanding that they stop the production or distribution of such music. The activists of the 1990s, in contrast, have found some music so offensive that they have brought pressure on the music industry not to release it at all. This increased assertiveness has in turn provoked the defenders of pop music, and the debate has grown even more spirited. The Critics' Case The critics of pop music worry that it coarsens or degrades our culture, fearing that the unrestrained lust and hate, which are the themes of choice in the music in question, encourage large numbers of people to believe that such feelings are acceptable and perhaps even praiseworthy. More particularly, these critics fear that the effects of such music may be permanent, that it will leave a lasting impression on the character of the young people who imbibe it. Much of the rhetoric advanced in defence of pop music suggests that its production and consumption is of no concern to anyone but the producers and consumers themselves. The critics are asked what difference it makes to them, what kind of music other people like, and they are reminded that if such music offends them, they are free not to buy it. Thus, judgments about music are implicitly relegated to the private realms of taste and free economic exchange. Nevertheless, the critics' invocation of culture is meant to suggest that the popularity of such music is decidedly a public concern. After all, by the culture, they emphatically mean popular culture or public culture. Thus, their rhetoric implies that in influencing the culture, such music is doing something to all of us, something that many of us do not want done. Yet how can this be a tenable position in a liberal democracy? The defenders of pop music have a powerful point. After all, though the critics may disapprove of such music, and though they may be sincerely alarmed at the effect they fear that music will have on the thoughts and feelings of others, the notion that people's thoughts and feelings should be a matter of public concern is highly suspect in our society. Surely actions alone are of public concern, while thoughts and feelings belong to the private realm. Critics of pop music respond that musical cultural pollution most emphatically is of public concern because it powerfully influences the way people act. Many of the young devotees of such music, the argument goes, are influenced to behave in the way the music describes and apparently recommends, and the result is the growth of social pathologies that do significant material harm to society. Thus, such music is not merely a private matter of what some people like, in contrast to what others do not, but a public matter of how large numbers of people behave, and perhaps even of how a majority of tomorrow's adults reared on today's popular music will behave. Pop music raises serious concerns about the ultimate public and cultural question, what kind of a people are we to be?
It is in this light that the critics go so far as to worry that this music threatens the very survival of our civilization. Thus, for example, John Leo suggests that the future of our free society hangs upon how we respond to pornographic pop music. While such concerns may seem hyperbolic, the usually unstated arguments behind them are reasonable on their face. A free society requires citizens with the ability and willingness to exercise self-control. In the absence of the public order such citizens support, coercion by the government becomes necessary. Music that permanently undermines the capacity for self-control of large numbers of citizens is in the long run destructive of our political freedom. In defense of pop. Defenders of pop music have advanced a number of arguments against this critique. I refer with some reservation to the defenders of pop music. The term can be misleading if one does not bear in mind that some of these defenders deplore pop music but still oppose efforts to restrict it. Thus, they are defenders of this music only in the sense of being defenders, they would say, of the freedom of those who produce and consume it. Critics wildly exaggerate the prevalence of obscene popular music, they contend, and pop music is for the most part nothing more than harmless, if admittedly mindless, fun. If the themes of some pop tunes are offensive, the defenders add, it is not a problem because kids pay no attention to the words anyway. Additionally, some hold that even when obscene lyrics are present, heard and understood, they do not cause the harmful behaviours the critics fear. One author asserts, for example, that the cause and effect link between rap music and violence is weak. For every scholar who offers research that the link exists, another will offer research to dispute the claim. Similarly, Robert Patterson, in a penetrating account of rock music to which I will...